Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to another episode of Speaking of Reliability. My name is Chris Jackson. And I'm Diana Dini. Hi, Chris. Hi, Diana. And I think we're going to talk about today sustainability and I suppose um, environmental concerns more broadly as a result of that. Yeah, there's a, it's an ongoing topic. I, I tend to make different purchasing decisions based on whether something is recyclable or reusable, but on the engineering side, I know that can pose some challenges for engineers too, especially Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to reliability. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, one of the easiest things we can do when it comes to sustainability is to not over-engineer, which is one of the sort of um, go-to ways that many organizations sort of pursue when it comes to trying to make things perceivably reliable. Unfortunately, those in the know in the reliability engineering industry know that over-engineering is not the same as reliability engineering. We've um, seen plenty of over-engineered devices and machines and components fail miserably early because they didn't take the time to work out what the actual weak points of the system were. Instead, they tried to reinforce all the bits they knew pretty well without actually doing it in a very theoretical or analytical way. And all of a sudden, you got something which is twice as big and twice as heavy as it needs to be. And so it's not just sustainability in terms of the materials used and things like that, but it's a carbon footprint associated with transportation and delivery of those devices in their spare parts. So one of the first things you can do when it comes to reliability engineering is make sure you do it properly, which means you don't over-engineer, you only focus on the vital few. And so you don't create tons of CO2 just to get your machine from one place to another. Yeah, I can see an opposing force to that is that a lot of companies are trying to beat each other to the market with new innovative products, right? Mm -hmm. And they are taking what they already have and trying to adapt it or add the next generation to it when maybe that wasn't the original 10 of the, the engineering project. I know some designs, um, you, if you you could plan out far ahead where we're going to release this version and then uh, in another year, we're going to iterate on that. Um, but I don't know how many projects are planned out like that. And um, yeah, that's, that is a different viewpoint than when I was thinking when I think of sustainability. And you're talking about just um, making the engineering design really just what it needs to be smart design and reducing the amount and the number of materials and components that are part of it to make it work right mm-hmm. and sometimes you can find uh, again if you use a familiar which is able to or things like a familiar which is and they're able to um you, you can use whatever criteria you want in a familiar and one of them is sustainability and not just sustainability, but supply chain risks. So for example, if your de- your design requires a component and that component is only manufactured by one company in the uh, high above the Arctic Circle in Norway, just picking Norway out of a random, <laughs> randomly remote comp- uh, country. Sure. Um, but that's, that's a risk. And so you can incorporate not only supply chain risk in that way in terms of the components or even technology selection, but 
the same thing goes with environmental risk. So what would what would people do? I guess they would just have that as part of their uh, ongoing their initial requirements for a project. Um, how have you experienced companies reviewing this kind of thing? Is it the reliability engineer that kind of uh, stands up as an independent reviewer and notes out or or points out these kind of things? Or have you seen companies adopting um, different uh, initiatives in order to make things simpler for sustainability reasons? For me, I mean, not all organisations do that. Um, the organisations that do, the sustainability uh, piece seems to be embedded in their DNA as an organisation or it's not. Um, I've never mm. seen, I'd say the same thing about reliability. Either an organisation is serious about reliability or it's not. Um, if you have a poor reliability engineer who's supposed to be fighting the good fight, so to speak, um that rarely works when it comes to making reliable products because it's either in the organization's DNA or not. And I'd, my guess is that if the reliability engineer is also now the sustainability engineer and everybody else is uh, able to offload their mental accountability for that problem to to that person. Yeah, it's um, not really fair, is just, it? No, I could just see that guy or girl um, yeah, getting burnt out pretty quickly. Um, so I do see reliability engineering as an important part of sustainability, but it's got to be in the DNA of the organization or, or it's not. Um, that's my, my experience. Yeah. And in, in cases where it's not, there's starting to be regulations about um, just if you want to sell products in California, for example, um, they passed a regulation that they're not going to accept any packaging anymore. That's, um, of that foam variety, that foam variety, you know, the, uh, oh, what do they call that white packaging stuff that flakes off and blows everywhere? Yes, the styrofoam. Like, we don't want it. You're not allowed to ship product to our state um, if your product is packed in styrofoam. So they mm -hmm. passed that regulation. And, and of course, it's a state and people aren't just producing products for that state. So that has an impact on a lot of the other places where they're shipping products. So just through a regulation of even just a state, companies are being forced to choose more sustainable methods and ways to package things. And I, I can kind of see the results of it from the products that I'm buying now. I'm seeing a lot less styrofoam. And I'm just wondering how much that's attributed to that regulation in California. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, for example, I often see you're seeing increasing numbers of you know, utensils from fast food restaurants that used to be plastics mm. are now wooden. Um, we're also seeing more and more shopping bags going from plastic to paper. I was going to say, in the, the grocery store thing, um, there's also been uh, municipalities around here where, where I live in the in the East Coast where they just said, no stores, you're not allowed to use plastic bags anymore. Um, right. So the shoppers either have to buy a reusable bag where they're there or just remember to do it or grab one of the boxes that the store uses to receive cans of corn. You know, <laughs> they they mm -hmm. empty it when they put it on the shelf. So here's a box. 
but yes, you were going to add something about California too. Well, I think that anyone who's been to California knows that every thing it appears to uh, has that sticker warning about carcinogens. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the everything's got a warning. Of, mm-hmm. Right, and to an extent, I think it's lost its lost its meaning. I mean, virtually like vehicles have those stickers and we know that but i mean it's it's rare to find something that does something in california without one of those stickers and that's because everything from you know diesel fumes through to red meat has been identified as a possible carcinogen or probable carcinogen and to the extent that you know uh if that's having an effect i i haven't seen any evidence to support that affecting consumer sentiment and I think too many people uh, look at laws and regulations as the answer. Well, it's it's more consumer sentiment, I, I would argue. But I think going back to shopping bags, I think more and more municipalities and, and, and smaller districts, they're the ones who have to pay for the recycling or the landfill that's where this where these shopping bags are essentially get dealt with. And I think that more and more we're seeing that with you know downward pressures on on property taxes and taxes and council rates. Um, they're looking at organizations and say, well, you're making this waste product. Why should we be responsible for having to deal with it? If you want to, if you could spend an extra couple of cents, you could use a, a more biodegradable product, but you don't. And then that means oh, we now need to deal with this for the next thousand years or so. Um, I think electric cars are in the same space because those batteries once they're done who who deals with with uh the batteries of those cars uh right. recycles them they can't just sit there the way uh, the uh, model t4s can sit there relatively benignly for over a century um so i think it's moving towards hey end to end recycling or disposal of stuff so that's my perception anyway now for the things that consumers don't see like the plastic bags and the packaging um you know i i just bought a hair uh a hair comb a hair brush for my kid the other day and it was in recycled cardboard and it was uh mm-hmm. using plastics that are plant based plastics yep. instead of the oil based um and i was willing to pay a little bit more for that um but you know that was that's another consumer driven kind of uh, thing or or maybe a company driven um, initiative too, but for the things that are hidden from the consumers, like um, like not using lead solder anymore, the transition from leaded solder to solder that doesn't have lead, that's something mm-hmm. that consumers and unless you're into electronics, um, you really wouldn't recognize or know that that's happening. Just that change of material we're we're not using this material anymore and we have to change to it and that can affect the reliability of the product so there's there's almost a need for companies too to kind of look ahead and and keep their eye on these kind of changes for long-term reliability of their products in the field because that affects it well salt is actually a good good example because because um we're, we're transitioning to low temperature solder as well. Um, and one of the main driving forces between for that is 
you require less thermal energy to melt solder, which means that you don't have to spend as much money on electricity when you're creating PCBs and things like that. Mm. And so uh, to, to, to the extent that that's been driven by the desire to do good through environmental motivations versus bottom line because uh, electricity is increasingly expensive, uh, I don't know. I think it might be just a happy coincidence in many ways. It makes it an easy decision to make. But that's you're talking about transitions from lead solders. I mean, they're moving increase, increasingly towards bismuth-based solders that allow that low temperature melting point. But there's all sorts of problems with that. Bismuth leads can be inherently more brittle. Um, and that's where the reliability engineer can be really, really helpful at working out what need, what we need to do to incorporate a more sustainable, lower carbon footprint material um, with inherently higher risk of failure, which bismuth-based uh, bismuth solder, bismuth solder has. Um, I think we just sort of, I don't know, at least it feels like I've just talked myself into a little circle in that little paragraph, but it, at least it's, uh, I, I think it illustrates that you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah, that's true. And, and even with something less technical than, than solder, um, you know, I remember an ad or an article that I saw about an auto manufacturer trying to redo the way they manufacture just the cushions and the seats of the car. So instead of relying on the older sources of foam products, they were trying to um, create and use a foam product that would degrade in the landfill instead of just being around forever. Um, but that's that's another hidden thing um i guess they would notify consumers i learned about it from them through an ad <laughs> so they're telling their consumers about it maybe it's a way to get more consumer buy-in it might be like you mentioned the uh the general the company just that's part of their uh, mo is the sustainability practices that's something they want to invest in um, but it was interesting to learn a bit about how they were making that change and the kind of testing that they were doing for it um, and the re-engineering they had to do in order to adopt that new foam material. Right. And I think um, you talk about automobile manufacturers. That's where globalization can have a really useful effect because you have to cater for, in, in many ways, the most sustainably-minded countries if you want to sell your product overseas. So it's all well and good to look at domestic markets, wherever that, whatever country you're in defines a domestic market. But there are lots of other countries which have um, even organizations like the EU, they have uh, regulations which are increasingly um, environmentally centric. Mm -hmm. Even just the, think about what's happening with Apple um, where they're essentially saying, if you want to sell Apple products in the EU, it's got to have a USB-C charger, all these different cables uh, that we need to now provide across airports and, you know, electronic shops and everything else is unnecessary. So a simple change where Apple falls in line with Android and um, other devices is going to save lots of carbon dioxide being put in the atmosphere because every phone and tablet can use the same charger. Um, 
I hadn't heard that. that I hadn't heard about that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's 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 being played out. It's it's not a done deal, but that's an example of if you if you want to design something which uh, is going to satisfy the domestic market and nothing else, then there's a chance you might not be making as many sales overseas. And that's a competitive disadvantage. So we not only have to think about things we can or can't see, but there's a mosaic of regulations and thought bubbles across the world when it comes to um, environmental concerns that you really need to start being ahead of the curve because you want to be that organization which has already got a sustainable product that when the next raft of environmental regulations from country A and country B come in, you're good. It's uh, it's actually a wise business decision. Um, so it's, I mean, it, I think you'd be crazy as an organization not to think about sustainability, uh, especially if you create something which is comparative to a competitor. The only point of difference being is that they have environmental credentials. Well, you're going to lose a fair amount of market to a competitor if you, if you're not on on that bandwagon. Yeah, and you know that the other interesting thing about that that Apple example was was uh, you know a company saying, hey, you have to standardize here. <laughs> so now you're standardizing a technology, and that kind of loops around back to one of your first points was just don't over engineer something. But that's mm-hmm. really on a global scale. So instead of having, like you said, four or five different uh, USB formats for charging, you would just have one or two, and that's what would be manufactured. Um, So the simplicity on a standard scale. But then I I guess it has to do, too, with things like, you know, the way things are charged really isn't a differentiator for how it works. Well, it might be. (laughs) You backtrack on that. (laughs) But from the consumer's point of view, like they don't really care how something is plugged in. You know, that's not a differentiating feature of of a product um saying that i i want this kind of charger but but i could see that there would be other innovative ideas that would buck the standards um and you, yeah like you said you just kind of have to monitor where things are going with uh with legacy methods of doing things if there's going to be standards globally or even at the state level um it's a very complicated topic and uh it's very interesting mm-hmm. i mean i think a really good case study is uh the standard standardization of electricity it wasn't that long ago 100 years or so where virtually every power generation plant had was providing power to the local town or distribution network in their own unique voltage at their own unique frequency selling their own unique appliances that could deal with it with their own unique plugs and the amount of effort it took to standardize electricity generation in terms of voltage and frequency and outlets um it it, it essentially a couple of gentlemen involved in that it sort of ruined their careers they finally got there but i was spent professionally as a result of it but today that makes sense you could no one could imagine what it'd be like having to buy a washing machine from your local town washing machine manufacturer because uh, your local town's voltage is 135.6 volts at 70 hertz or what have you. And that's the only sort of electricity uh, in the world where that's where that's the case. 
Um, so I can imagine going back to the Apple and Android sort of USB-C charger thing. I think what, if there was a single standard charging plug socket, then very quickly you'd see that that would become endemic across internet cafes and Starbucks and coffee houses and airports across the world where any product that was going to deviate from that standard, uh, informal standards even, uh, would be uh, at a significant disadvantage when it comes to customer satisfaction. So I agree with you right now, customers don't care to an extent, but once that standardization happens, I think they would and they'd be good luck to an organization trying to create their own unique charging cable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they'd be, the consumer would be inconvenienced. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, look, you even look at most cell phones these days, they can be charged wirelessly and that has to be standardized. Um, so it, it, there's always this, this sort of momentum towards a single technology in, in, uh, in places like this. And uh, again, if, you, if you're not ahead of the curve, there's a chance you're going to be behind it. And when being behind the curve when it, in commercial innovation is, is a very dangerous place to be. Hmm. Well, that's, I don't know, that's all very interesting. I, I, I find this topic interesting whenever I find an article on it. Um, I don't have a particular source, uh, you know, of articles or extra news or things that are going on. I guess it's, it just takes awareness and um, looking for that kind of stuff in order to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And, but bringing it back to reliability and quality, I think, one good reliability engineering and good quality engineering um, involves not over-engineering, not having excess material and everything else, and that reduces costs and carbon footprints. It makes, and it, makes two, it easier to manufacture. Right, right, absolutely. And two, the march towards sustainability and environmentally focused or cognizant products requires new technologies we just talked about one today, the bismuth uh, soldering, which has bismuth in it to reduce the melting point to make it easier and less expensive to, to solder and by extension, lower carbon footprint. Of course, having lead, which is very damaging to the environment, is a happy byproduct, but that introduces its own challenges when it comes to reliability. And the reliability engineers need to be part of that conversation to make sure these new techn- technologies don't destroy the reliability that consumers are expecting when we transition to sustainable products. But I think that's the two, two main things. Yes, I think so too. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. It's a big topic and kind of complicated. It's, it's uh, good to be able to narrow it down to two things. Um, And I think they are very relevant. I agree. It's got to be more things than that. I'm sure our listeners can think of stuff. Um, in the comments when they give us a feedback, which was always valuable. Yeah. If um if you go to what is it speaking of reliability? Um yeah, so no, ascend of reliability. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> that's right. So people who are interested in learning more, you probably you you've probably got this um you probably got this uh podcast from Ascendo Reliability, but please feel free to go to Ascendo Reliability forward slash series forward slash SOR where 
not only this podcast, but lots of others that cover all sorts of different topics and ideas and reliability conundra. Is that the plural or conundrums or I don't know. We'll, we'll so go with conundrums. <laughs> yeah, conundra slash conundrums. Uh, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of people who talk about hopefully increasingly relevant topics in the world of reliability. And of course, if we have missed anything in the world of sustainability and carbon footprints and environmentally um, sound product development as it relates to reliability, be really good to hear about it in the comments. We take the comments very seriously and many podcasts have been based on listener feedback. Yeah, it would be good if um, any listeners out there know of any new things like the Apple charger story, if there's another story <laughs> out there uh, that's being talked about, um, let us know what it is. Diane, it's been a pleasure speaking and look forward to our, our next conversation on something cutting edge and a lot of reliability and quality. Yeah, me too. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Dinah. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.